You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 1st of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, those China-US trade talks. Are they getting anywhere or has Donald Trump set them up to fail? My guests Jonathan Fenby and Carlo Benura will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Sri Lanka's fears that they are merely the first target of Islamic State's next campaign, what we've learned so far about Indonesia's election and... God, seems like a thousand years ago. I fought my way out of that cave, became Iron Man. Is three hours too long to watch one film in one go? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Jonathan Fenby, Chairman of China Research and Director of European Political Research at T.S. Lombard, also an author and journalist, and Carlo Benura, Senior Teaching Fellow in Southeast Asian Politics at SOAS here in London. Welcome both. And we will start in Beijing, and a reminder that amid the undignified circus still occurring in Washington, D.C., attempts at what older listeners might remember as actual governance are occurring. Specifically in this instance, the latest round of trade talks between the United States and China, which have wrapped up for the moment and are due to resume in Washington next week. U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has described the latest round of discussions as productive, but as politicians use this adjective to describe any meeting at which no furniture was actually thrown, it's hard to know how much to read into this. Um, Jonathan, first of all, how important are these talks? Oh, they are very important indeed. Uh, They're important because uh, the length of time that the negotiations have been going on, the threat that the trade war could get worse if they fail, uh, have induced a lot of uncertainty, what's uh, avoidance of risk, uh, let's say, across the world economy, and uh, a contraction of uh, supply chain activity and of trade generally. So if you want the global economy to start ticking over faster and more strongly, uh, you need a trade deal between the US and China. Do you think, um, Carlo, that the United States is actually approaching these seriously or is the idea that Donald Trump can just set up another sort of throwing over of the table and flouncing? I think that there is a seriousness, but it's not uh, It's not really Donald Trump who's the main actor mm-hmm. here. It's the trade hawks, namely uh, Robert um, Lighthizer and uh, Peter Navarro. These are people who are very, very serious about uh, what they believe to be the United States's uh, uh, position in the in the world trade system, constantly being behind the eight ball in terms of the WTO, which is, of course, debatable, uh, and certainly um, uh, the United States position in terms of trade vis-a-vis China. They see this as an opportunity. The, the mixture here, which is very interesting, is that uh, you have a kind of bad cop, bad cop uh, scenario in which Trump is able to ratchet up the pressure in all kinds of ways that are that are in no way substantive. Uh, and then you have uh, Lighthizer and Navarro who are able to actually craft precise demands. It's the combination of these. Whether or not this will actually produce uh, real results, I think that's the question. Jonathan, how, in, I guess to ask the same question from the other side, is how seriously invested in this do you think uh, China is? Or are we approaching the point where they look at Donald Trump and think, 
you know, we can we can live with another year and a half of this clown until hopefully somebody serious is in the White House instead? Well, their fear is it may not be a year and a half. It may be five and a half years uh, and so on. And they're, they're looking, they underestimated Trump's chances of victory and they've got Trump wrong through most of the early part uh, of his, his presidency, it must be said. Uh, China can give way on uh, a number of issues. The question really is whether the Americans, and let's say Trump, settles for a deal which is primarily about tariffs uh, and how many so- how many million tons of soybeans the US uh, exports uh, to China and so on, or the extent to which he goes along with Lighthizer, the trade representative, uh, and others in his camp who would like structural reforms in China, uh, notably the uh, lessening of the Communist Party state uh, involvement in the economy. And that is something that the Chinese will resist uh, really to the end and so on. So it's a question of whether Trump wants to declare victory uh, and can reach a fairly easy uh, set uh, of agreements with the Chinese. And there were reports uh, by the Financial Times yesterday that he'd actually given, was ready to give way on the whole question of cyber theft and so on. If he's willing to make those kinds of compromises, a deal can be done. On the other hand, the way he uh, walked out of uh, the North Korean talks in Hanoi a couple of months ago uh, is a kind of warning that he might do that at the last minute with China. Carlo, is the key point driving this, or at least driving the United States input to this, whether or not Donald Trump perceives that the trade war with China is helping or hindering him at home? I don't think he has a good I don't think he's very responsive to that. And we, we've seen a lot of data about how uh, not only in terms of the economic impact of the Chinese retaliation, uh, the impact that that's had on his own, the kind of core constituencies, mm-hmm. particularly in the, the old Rust Belt in the northern part of the United States, uh, but also in terms of polling, if you believe the polls, you know, this poll came out a couple of days ago, which said that uh, something like uh, 15, only 15 percent of people in the United States believe that Trump's economic policies has actually helped helped them or been beneficial to them. Uh, I think that um, Trump has a very, uh, by now, since we've seen it on a number of different occasions, he has a, a very set pattern of negotiation, which is ratchet up as much pressure as possible on the person you're negotiating with and see what comes out of this. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, agreement produced very few changes. And ironically, uh, there's very little support for it at the moment in Congress. The twist here is that in Congress, there's a lot of support for the for Trump being hard-nosed with China. Uh, and yet it's, it's not clear that he'll get anything more than a few uh, gestures of, uh, you know, opening up uh, markets for foreign investment, uh, but nothing really on on uh, intellectual property, things like that, the harder things. And, yes, I think, I mean, the whole, the, the era of what was known as constructive engagement between the US and China, the kind of belief going back to Bill Clinton that if China got richer, it would be, quote, more like us, uh, unquote, uh, which was always a uh, ridiculous uh, estimation. Um, but that has gone. And there now is a strategic rivalry, I think, that goes pretty deep between China and America and isn't simply trade. It's it's in the military uh, area. It's in the regional area with the South China Sea. Uh, it's going to be in all kinds of areas. And if America is continues to withdraw from international organizations, the Chinese will see that uh, as a big opportunity for them. 
And I think this adds a lot to the uh, the conversation because whether or not Trump or uh, Lighthizer or Navarro, whether they can calculate, uh, make the proper calculations on trade is one thing, but actually it's no longer just about trade. No, it's, it's about uh, these other geopolitical issues as well. Okay, yeah. well, let's move along and look at Sri Lanka, the president of which, Maithripala Sirisena, has asked and or told Islamic State to leave my country alone. This is not in itself remarkable. The public record does not contain any other instances of countries welcoming Islamic State with open arms. But it was said in in the context of a warning by President Sirisena that Islamic State, having been chased out of their caliphate in Syria and Iraq, may take up further attacks such as the Easter Sunday bombings in Sri Lanka, which Islamic State have now claimed, if possibly opportunistically. Um, Jonathan, does this seem likely that this is the next mutation of Islamic State? Because presumably there was, as they saw it, a strategic and political reason why they would release that video, as they did earlier this week, yeah. of their uh, nominal leader, um, Baghdadi, who had not been seen at all for mm. five years beforehand. If it is Baghdadi, yes. But anyway, well, it's, it's a statement by by ISIS. That doesn't really really matter from that point of view. And uh, in that statement, he specifically said that the bombings were the response to the losses of the last territorial stronghold uh, in, in Syria. And I must say, I think this was always very the most probable reaction of ISIS, that if they were beaten, pushed back on the ground in Syria, they would turn to international terrorism, uh, as we've seen uh, in Sri Lanka. I mean, implicit in this suggestion by Islamic State, Carlo, and indeed in President Sirisina's response, is the idea that it's probably easier, uh, if everyone's being honest, for Islamic State to hit a country like Sri Lanka than it might be for them to hit a country with a a more sophisticated intelligence and security apparatus. Um, is there a trade-off, though, and I'm, I'm inviting you to think like an Islamic State strategist, which I appreciate you are not, <laughs> that though the attacks in Sri Lanka attracted considerable, uh, indeed colossal international attention, as, as well they should have, it still wasn't the same attention you would command by pulling a, an attack of the same magnitude in New York or Paris or London? I think so. Uh, however, given the fact that they've lost their territorial base in the Middle East, uh, what we've seen from the Islamic State are a number of attacks on the periphery of, um, well, outside the outside the Middle East and Central Asia, on the periphery, you could say, of the Muslim world, uh, where they are testing uh, state authority and state responses. So I think that this is uh, akin to the Marawi siege in the southern Philippines, uh, because both Sri Lanka and in the southern Philippines, you have fairly weak states with weak uh, militaries and security apparatuses. And the fact that they were able to pull off a siege of a city for so long in the southern Philippines uh, a year and a half ago now uh, in 2017 uh, and were able to pull off this bombing in Sri Lanka actually perhaps emboldens the group uh, at the level that uh, they're able to use these local cells uh, and connect the dots, if you will, uh, in order to demonstrate the viability of the of the of Islamic State more generally. Uh, and so it's interesting, you know, in Malaysia and in Indonesia, where it's much harder for Islamic State to function, uh, Malaysia is seen as a country which has its security forces have been very successful in, in clamping down on militant activities, but is still uh, a conduit for terrorists in, into other parts of Asia. And so it's, it appears to be using different countries for different reasons in that regard. I mean, Jonathan, if we're trying to be optimistic about this, and that's not, not at all wishing to sound glib about what happened 
happened in Sri Lanka, which which was hideous even by the standards of Islamic State before now. Is it possible that what we're witnessing here is a, a kind of desperate lashing out by an organisation that, that knows that basically they've lost, they've been beaten? Their, their whole thing, their whole pitch, uh, both to their enemies and to recruits, was that we have land, we have territory, mm, yep. we are a state, there's a clue in the name. Yep. Um, if they don't have that anymore, and I think it would be extremely unlikely that they would recover anything remotely like it. Um, are they really still a, a viable proposition at this point? They're, I think they're still a viable proposition as a source of terror and, and of attacks. What we don't know, of course, is how many sleeper cells, as it were, are embedded uh, around the world and how that, that can go on. And indeed, in Sri Lanka, the authorities are saying that they have to keep a level of high alert because they expect another another strike by um, ISIS-backed, ISIS-linked militants and so on. And in a sense, this... You know, it, it is less focused. It was more focused when it was specifically about part of territory uh, in Syria. Now it's a wide, amorphous uh, threat, which uh, we, we don't know where the next uh, instance is going to come from. Carlo, what have you made of the Sri Lankan government's response to this? Because it's it's been clear, and in minor fairness to them, they have admitted that they did get caught out, that there was information that was in circulation but did not get passed high enough up the chain of command before the attack could place uh, took place rather since then they've gone into um something must be done this is something therefore we must do it mode they've banned face coverings in public for example declared a state of emergency what have you made of their handling of it is this a government that's in control or a government that's just trying really hard not to be blamed well i think it's a government which is trying to put uh use these steps to demonstrate that it has some type of control. But the real issue in terms of the structure of uh, information sharing, which was it appears to be the real problem here, that the some elements of the uh, in, of intelligence and the political apparatus had knowledge of these threats and the uh, some some did not. You know, the, to have a leadership which is not unified for yeah. political reasons, getting in the way of uh, security, the management of security in the country. This is these are changes that uh, we we don't know how these are going to be resolved. And if you would presume that those things have been resolved, uh, or will be resolved as quickly as possible to avoid another attack. But this again is about it, it comes down to domestic politics. It seems. Uh, just on that specific point, Jonathan, of of the ban on face covering, and th this is a an idea that there is a a clamour for periodically of various varying yeah. degrees uh, everywhere in the world. Really, does it actually make anybody safer? No. <laughs> a straightforward answer. I'd say. Uh, absolutely not. But it, it's a gesture. It's a political gesture. Uh, it's something which, you know, may be seen as we are reacting and such. But the actual security uh, benefits from this, I think, are minimal or absolutely none. OK, well, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Carlo Benura and Jonathan Fenby. Coming up next, Indonesia's election and what we have learned from it. Immerse yourself in the world of Monocle. Visit monocle.com. Listen live to our radio station, Monocle 24, or explore more than 5,000 hours of audio. Every minute of every show we've broadcast since we launched. And don't forget that we have over 400 films to watch and share, while magazine subscribers can log in and browse our complete print archive on screen. Our online shop is here too, which you'll find well-stocked with clothing, books, travel accessories, fragrances, homewares, and more. 
Check into monocle.com every day for fresh news and opinion from our editors and bureau around the globe. Then plan a trip to one of those spots for business or pleasure with our handy city and resort guides. It's all there for you at monocle.com. What are you waiting for? You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Molester, with me are Carlo Benura and Jonathan Fenby. And let's look now at Indonesia, which really shouldn't hold elections more or less concurrently with India. While India gets all the stories, and quite rightly, about the colossal logistical enterprise of getting 900 million voters through the polling booths, Indonesia gets less credit than it might be due for doing the same for 190 million voters scattered across nearly a thousand inhabited islands. Indonesia voted on April 17th, and while final official results are not due until later this month. It seems pretty clear that the incumbent president, Joko Widodo, has been handily returned. Ditto his Indonesian Democratic Party of Struggle in the People's Representative Council, where they look set to win again the largest number of seats. Um, Carlo, we have talked a lot on this programme about the astonishing feat that India puts on when it puts on an election. I I do think we should extend a bit of credit to the people who who do have to do this. It's it's an extraordinary thought. 190 million registered voters or possible voters, that's obviously not the same as the population of Indonesia, which is far Mm -hmm. higher. A thousand inhabited islands, 800,000 polling stations I read somewhere. It's extraordinary. Uh, It was a major event and the, the entire... Uh, amount of time for the election to take place was under eight hours. Uh, And so what you had was uh, the claim to fame is that, if I'm not mistaken, it's the largest uh, simultaneous election in the world. Uh, India rather sensibly spreads it out. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In one day. And as a result, some, I don't know if you've talked about this on the show, but uh, one of the costs to that, the human costs, of course, uh, is that there's been over 270 uh, people who have died, uh, workers who have died, and 100 and, or sorry, 1,800 people who have been hospitalized from exhaustion. One of the ways that Indonesia was able to achieve a high turnout rate was to ensure that the polling stations had only 200 people, 200 voters for each polling station, uh, which is a very small amount. And that means that voters wouldn't have to wait online. Uh, but it, um, it also means that, and that they could do, you know, in, in six hours, you can get 200 people through a, vo- uh, through a polling place. Uh, but it did mean that a, a massive effort, and in some cases, as the vice president, Yusuf Kala, said after the election, uh, this has to be reviewed in terms of how sustainable it is, because you don't want, uh, you know, some people were suggesting that, that in some parts of Indonesia, like uh, in Papua, there might have been violence on election day, uh, but you don't want to have, it's one thing to face political violence in elections, it's another thing to face uh, humanitarian losses because of the government simply insisting on all of this being done in one day. Uh, Jonathan, I, I do want to ask about that with your with your journalist's hat on. Is, is this a story that perhaps journalists have been a little too excited about the headline and perhaps less excited about the story? Because at, at the risk of sounding pedantic, um, 270 election workers did die mm-hmm. during the election, mm-hmm. and that is obviously a tragedy for 270 families. But that's 270 workers out of 7 million people right. who yeah. worked on the election. Uh, I'm not sure what the... Uh, basic baseline averages out of any given 7 million people how many are going to die on a given is, day given but, day, but, uh, but really is it a thing well somebody will probably ring in and uh, <laughs> or come in and, and tell you uh, what the thing is but I think uh, what this is is um, a great example of where democracy uh, has actually it seems taken root 
uh, in Indonesia. I mean, I can remember back uh, at the end of the last century when I was uh, in the region uh, a lot. Uh, Indonesia was, you know, under a military dictatorship, uh, which seemed to be uh, there for the long, long time. Was overthrown or fell uh, for whatever reason, and uh, people said, "Well, yes, we're going to have democracy, but how long will it last? What are its roots, and so on?" And it does seem that with uh, considerable assistance, I would guess, from uh, a popular president who knows a popular and populist president, let us say, who knows how to to spread the message, Um, democracy has has continued uh, and flourished there uh, in a way which is most welcome to those of us who think democracy is probably the best system. Uh, Carlo, it's, it's, it's obviously been an eventful election and we could be here some while discussing all the events that have occurred within it. But we, we do need to talk about Padang food and why it became, <laughs> yeah, well. and why it became controversial. Right. So Padang food is, is the, you can't really call it the national cuisine of Indonesia, but it's a cuisine that, that Indonesia is, is very famous for. It's very popular in Indonesia. Uh, it's basically the most famous dish might be beef rendang. Uh, it comes from the western part of the country in West Sumatra, and uh, it is a food that people eat uh, for lunch, but they're going to eat it all the time. It's curry-based. It's, it's yeah. really good. Uh, and in uh, West— This is not sounding controversial so no, far. No, not, not controversial. Nice, it's it's <laughs> nice food, and everybody like likes it. It's very nice food. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was eating it just a couple of days ago, admittedly in Singapore, not in Indonesia. It was absolutely delicious. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, and uh, in the province, which is most renowned for this food, uh, Jokowi uh, and uh, you know the, the team uh, for the president uh, won by a landslide. And some of the supporters of the opponent, uh, uh, Prabowo Suyanto and his team, have argued that they should boycott Padang food uh, as a, a means of rejecting the you know outcome in that particular province. It, it should be noted that. Is is that any more or less unbelievably childish than it sounds? Uh, some in some of the coverage, it was referred to as hilarious. It is fairly uh, childish. Some people could argue that you know this was a very polarizing election, and uh, Prabowo still hasn't accepted the outcome. So some people might argue that this is uh, some example of uh, of. Uh, the polarization level of polarization there. It should be noted, however, that the claim went viral over Facebook. And so insofar as social media played a huge role in producing a long list of hoaxes and disinformation in the uh, in the election itself, that this is simply one more in that uh, line of um, a silly social media stories, yeah. Uh, Carlo, we should we should take a look at the uh, presumptively re-elected president, Yoko Widodo. Uh, obviously, I, we, we don't want to start writing political obituaries for the chap right now. He's just about to start on a new term. But he has now been there a while. We have an idea of what he is and what he's about. Do we have a sense of what... Well, I guess there's two questions in what he wants his legacy to be and what his legacy actually will be. Uh, well, he would. He wants his legacy to be one of bureaucratic reform, making Indonesia more efficient, and infrastructure uh, development. Really trying trying to structurally transform the Indonesian economy. Uh, I think the real legacy will be probably 
half, if not a quarter of all of his infrastructure goals might come to fruition, either in terms of being finished or being started. That's the bigger problem in Indonesia. Uh, and I think for those people who saw him as a liberal coming into his administration, mm -hmm. the big issue is that he has he has taken the highly autocratic nature of the Indonesian pre presidency and run with that. He he has ruled through executive order uh, more often than going through the legislature. Uh, he has kind of walked away from some of the human rights causes that he um, championed during the first administration. And in the second administration, it seems to be very pragmatic. You know, he's there's no, aside from moving uh, Jakarta as the political capital, yeah, sure. no big plans, no huge um, return to anything aspirational. He wants to get infrastructure built and he wants to do it in a way which causes as little political disruption as possible. Yeah, there is, I mean, an amazing looking back as somebody <clears throat> who reads about Indonesia, but I don't, not, can't claim to be any kind of expertise on it. There's an enormous difference between the reality now, if you like, and the, the expectations for a second term and what he came in with initially. Okay, well, finally tonight to the movies, and to judge by the considerable hype generated by and about Avengers, colon, Endgame, the umpty fifth and apparently concluding film of the Marvel superhero <laughs> franchise, the three of us sitting here may be the only people on Earth not presently attending a screening. Those who are at one or have been to one or are planning to attend will likely, however, miss at least some of it. The running time of three hours and change poses what we will decorously describe as a testing physical challenge. This has prompted some calls for the reviving of the tradition of the interval. Um, I was trying to remember the last time I went to a film with an interval. I think, and this is going back a long time, when Australian cinemas got hold of the full-blown director's cut version of Lawrence of Arabia, which goes on for about... Yeah. I don't know, six months or something. And there, there, I, I do remember there being an interval at that and it being a, a welcome thing at that point. Yeah, I can remember in the 1960s various <clears throat> Hollywood uh, biblical epics where there was an interval in the middle. And what I can remember is being in uh, English cinemas and watching these films usually happening in the desert. And indeed, Lawrence of Arabia, I, I, now I, I think was exactly the same. Uh, there would be the interval and the ice cream ladies would come down the aisle <laughs> saying, you know, buy a wall's ice cream. And you were absolutely dying for this uh, because you've been watching all this desert action for so long. <laughs> I mean, are, are, Carlo, are we broadly in favour of this? In intervals do still occur at the theatre, though I've always suspected at the theatre that they're, they're a kind of chance for people to, to make a run for it without uh, dis disrupting anybody. When you've sort of watched the first hour and a half of something, you've realised, oh, God, this could be that a long evening. I, I like that about theatre. It gives you the chance to just quietly cut your losses and bolt. Um, should films be doing the same thing? Uh, I think it's possible. I think the what is fascinating here is that this is not some type of avant-garde uh, film which is gaining controversy because of its length. Uh, this is simply a run-of-the-mill Hollywood Marvels uh, film, another film based on a comic book, uh, and somehow it's uh, it's gotten publicity for this. It is ironic we just moved from Indonesia because Wayang Kulit, the uh, shadow puppet plays, those performances go on all night long. People fall asleep, yes. they wake up, there's no problem, so maybe we should have the same attitude for films as well. I mean, is, is Jonathan, is, is three hours basically just overcooking it a bit anyway. I mean, however good a film is, if you can't tell the story yeah. in two hours, really. <laughs> I would tend to agree with you. I'm sufficiently old-fashioned that, I mean, I, uh, I like a film that lasts for maximum two hours, let's say, which is enough time 
not to have to run for the exit. I mean, I am speaking as somebody who got told by his publisher to take 30,000 words out of the manuscript <laughs> well, of, of his, <laughs> his latest book, available in all good stores in June. Um, Carlo, is, is it possible that we could be looking at a, a return uh, to more ritual associated with cinema? I'm, I'm thinking of the full-blown... Did they play the national anthem before or after? They used to play it right at the end, and you tried to get out of the cinema before they no, started I, the I, recording. I, yeah, I, I think that the whole, the whole thing, the national anthem and whatever else it is that they used to do. Somebody down the front playing a piano, perhaps. <laughs> that would be good. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, recently there's been a lot of discussion of how uh, Hollywood films or Hollywood is being rejuvenated uh, and that we have a lot more films that are about issues that are not necessarily uh, kind of mainstream uh, issues anymore. And perhaps uh, more ritual is one way to kind of liven that up as well. Have either of you seen or are you nurturing plans to see Avengers Endgame? I, uh, straight <coughs> uh, admission, I have not seen it. On the other hand, uh all my children have all seen it, and grandchildren are longing to see it. So uh, I'm the one out of step. Your, your family's doing its bit, it's fair it's, to it's say. It's doing its bit, and it didn't complain about it being too long. Carlo? Uh, I will admit that I knew nothing about the film. Are <laughs> <laughs> you now enticed? Um, kind of, no, not really. Okay. I, only I, if you're allowed out halfway through. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 I haven't seen it either because I don't go to the cinema because they've got people with phones in them. Um, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Jonathan Fenby and Carla Benura, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show is produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bates. There's more on the day's big stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns, 1800 london time tomorrow i'm andrew miller thank you very much for listening